Hello everyone, welcome to the Steve Hilton Show. Uh, Governor Gavin Newsom has just made a big announcement. He's going to solve the homeless crisis. That's right, he's going to solve it all over again. Another announcement of billions of dollars of your money to solve the homeless crisis that they created in the first place with their stupid policies. Um, we're going to get into the new latest plan from Governor Newsom to solve the homeless crisis uh, with billions of dollars of your money. Uh, with Susan Shelley, who knows all about it and has been following it very closely. And we've, t we've discussed it many times. This is the latest manifestation of uh, this approach, which is just spend more money and hope the problem goes away. Um, Susan is all over that. Leighton Woodhouse has really been doing a lot of work on this. You may remember him from a previous show. He works very closely with Michael Schellenberger. They're both absolutely fantastic on this issue. They've really dug in deeply into what's going on with our homelessness crisis. So who better to help us understand whether or not this latest announcement from Gavin Newsom will make the slightest difference, or if, like the previous announcements, will actually make the problem worse. Susan also has some information for us, by the way, on the water situation in California. We've had a lot of water lately. Um, I think you may have noticed if you live in the Golden State, the wet Golden State at the moment, but uh, they still will be back telling us it's a drought. Uh, you can count on that because they have not done anything to increase our water storage. Susan Shelley has some details on that. Very important story. And then after all of that, um, there's a couple of people I really think you'll enjoy meeting. Clifton Duncan and Hawk Jensen. By the way, when I say the word hawk, I know this from talking about the chickens that we have in our backyard and the threats to the chickens. Um, and around where we live, the main threat is hawks. And when I tell people hawks, they literally often say, well, what are you talking about? Because when you say the word hawk in an English accent, like I just did, people often have no clue what I mean. So I've got to say it in an American accent, hawk, okay, hawk. It's called hawk Jensen, um, <laughs> along with Clifton Junk Duncan. And they've made a brilliant and very important documentary about COVID and the lockdowns. You know how strongly we felt about all of that. Their documentary is called Follow the Science, brilliant name you'll enjoy meeting them um, and what they've put together but first let's get to the news of this new exciting initiative to solve the homelessness crisis Susan Shelley what do you make of it well obviously the one thing that we've been missing <laughs> is more money for this problem we're 20 billion dollars in so far in state in state spending on the homelessness problem and nothing is working it's just getting worse and rather than show even one demonstration project that's working, that's helping people get their lives back on track and producing the results that we all want, rather than show even one project that's working, the governor has proposed spending more money. And worse, he's mm -hmm. talking about a bond issue, which means it's borrowed money and you pay interest on it. And this is, he's talking about three mm -hmm. to $5 billion as a bond which will be double that when you add the interest charges over 30 years. And, of course, you get no budget flexibility when you have bonds because they have to be paid back, even if you have to cut something else from your current budget to pay your old debts. So it's the worst possible way to fund an ongoing expense. With, with borrowed money, it's, very, it's not the fiscal, so, not the fiscal uh, way to do it. Let's just get into the details here. He's made the announcement as part of his State of the State tour which replaces the state of the state speech because he says he doesn't like making speeches because of um his dyslexia um which we we've not known about but suddenly he doesn't want to make a state of the state speech he's going around the state making these announcements this one was an unveiled in san diego um and it's actually as you say it's a bond measure 
it's also going to be on the ballot in 2024. So that's the mechanism here. He's going to put forward a ballot initiative. Okay. And I think it's for the um, and and the request goes to the to the legislature to do this. Is that right? That's the way it, that's the that's the mechanism. That's right. It goes to the le- it goes to the legislature. It needs a two thirds vote in each house of the legislature to get on the ballot. And then once okay. on the ballot, it and needs then a what? Let's just take it at face value. Before we get into the thing, even on the face on the on the face value of this thing, you know, it's just mm-hmm. well. Let's just look at the numbers, right? So what he's saying is, it's three. Um, what is it? Three point one billion. Then he's going to take a. Yeah, three to five billion is what I heard. Somewhere between yeah, three so and that's five the new billion. Money. They haven't decided yet. And then they're also going to take. They're going to. They're going right. to redirect money from Prop, Prop sixty three. Right. So Prop 63 passed in 2004. This was an increase to the Mm -hmm. income tax for high-income people, an additional 1%, I think it is. And this has been racking up about $4 billion a year Mm -hmm. for spending on mental health services. And there's a lot of argument over whether that money is well spent or spent at all. Um, And so that's a separate question. But what he wants to do is redirect that funding for mental health services into this program because you can't currently use it for housing. And he wants to be able to use it for housing. So that will take wait, a Wait, wait, wait. Can I just sort of stop there? The so he's taking, issue... so there's extra money they're asking sure. for, he's going to be asking for, and right. redirecting existing right. money that's, that's aimed at mental health services to provide housing. Right. Even though we know, right. I mean, we've talked about it many times, Leighton Woodhouse, Michael Schellenberger, others, that the main, I mean, you and I, I mean, the, ma- the main characteristic of the homelessness crisis is that the people who are homeless have mental health problems and and or drug addiction usually go together. Right. Well, one of the biggest things that he's not talking about is the federal money that would be available to California if we got a waiver from a portion of federal law that prevents treatment of people for mental mm-hmm. illness in large institutions. This is called the exclusion for institutions of mental disease. We can get a waiver, and then we can get 50% of the money we spend on treatment for mental illnesses in large institutions paid by the federal government. But the governor doesn't want to do large institutions. And this is really a question that we need to be debating. He wants to build campuses of housing with services attached, which is a large what version got now. of exactly. Project Room Key. You put people in a room, and then you... You have services that if this they is, want them. That's a, that's a well, very important people, point. Sorry again to interrupt. That like, just to be really clear, this is basically an expansion of what they're doing now. Right. This is, a, this is another version. It sounds very poll-tested. They said it's going to help, I think, 10,000 homeless veterans. That sounds very poll-tested to me. Obviously, it's important to help homeless veterans. What have we been doing with the $20 billion well, no, we've spent 10, so I mean, sorry, No, I mean, the, the report I'm reading here, which is in the LA Times... Um, says here that the the gov I'm just quoting the governor's office said the bond measure he proposed for the 2024 ballot would pay for enough new beds for mental health care to serve more than the more than the 10,000 he said 10,000 that's their baseline number 10,000 additional people every year the state faces a shortage of 6,000 behavioral health beds this is the numbers they're talking about 6,000 other we have what is it 160,000 homeless at least that's the official count. It's going to be much higher than that. I mean, yes. this is a pinprick. Even on their own, that's what I'm saying, even on well, their own numbers. 
Yes, even on their own numbers. Los Angeles passed a bond, Measure HHH, five, six years ago, and it was supposed to provide 10,000 apartments. Uh, right now they say, oh, we never promised 10,000. We only promised 7,500, and they're not even there. And it was $1.2 billion for 7,500. So this is, the, the math doesn't work. What's needed here is the right solution for, for the individual problems yes. that people have. Substance abuse is one set of solutions. Mental illness is another set of solutions. People who are homeless because of domestic violence or poverty or some other problem beyond their control, that's another set of solutions. But certainly building a giant campus with 3 to $5 billion of borrowed money and having services available is not a solution. That's Project Room Key blown up to uh, I mean, steroids, the fact that they're putting out this, this language campus as well, I mean, it shows you that this is really all about spin and 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 creating the impression that mm -hmm. they're doing something. I mean, how many of them did you think, how many meetings do you think they had to think up that word campus? Let's call it a campus. I mean... It's the pollsters. Yeah, it campus, just sounds so pollsters. It's a campus. It? It's a campus for homeless people. You know, well, let's not call it a concentration camp or anything. You know, let's call it a campus. I mean, it's just so insulting right. to the intelligence. And you look at it, and and they, they, of course, they lead the news, and it's like billions of dollars, and it's going to be meant. And they throw in mental health because I think people are uh, are understanding that it's a mental health issue. But the thing that they won't change. This is what Leighton Woodhouse first alerted me to, um, and our audience was that actually in terms of the drug addiction component of that, and they absolutely go together, and there's also the crime aspect of the drug addiction, because as we learned when we made a doc documentary about all this down in Venice, um, the, the, it's a criminal issue. The drug gangs target people on mm -hmm. in the homeless encampments, turn them into dealers. And so it's a complete, right. the, the, but the central point is that they won't change, they won't address the law, which means that none, none of this money unless they change the law, the state law, California state law, none of this money can be spent getting people off drugs. That's the central point. They can only right. do what they call we harm reduction, which is keeping people on drugs, right. but trying to make sure they don't hurt themselves or get hurt or die through contaminated needles and so on. Of course, we all support the idea that people shouldn't die and shouldn't get hurt. But unless you get them off drugs, they are going to continue to be unable to build the kind of normal, decent, flourishing life that will enable them to exit and escape from homelessness. And they're not prepared to do that. And what about... What about everybody else? Where are they going to put these campuses that they don't require anyone yes. to be yes. sober to live in? There are no requirements. We have a housing first premise in California law since I believe 2015. So all the programs that are funded have to have this housing first component, the definition being no conditions. You can't require someone to go to classes or to be sober or anything in order to get the free housing. So you take all the people who have problems and you put them in one location and it's not a hospital, it's not an institution, it's just a campus. And then what? What happens to the surrounding community when you take all the people with problems and put them in this same campus? How how do they expect people to react to that? Yeah, exactly, with no requirement, exactly as you say, to to to, to have either to have um, stopped using drugs or, or to be on any, any kind of program or plan or treatment um, uh, right. service that actually requires them to be drug-free. No, that's not part of this. I mean, 
Right. There's another thing I just want to say, which is so frustrating when you hear this is this is a real not this is not just California, but the democratic mindset these days, which is just so gone so far left. Um, I mean, I used to say back in the UK, the, the great thing about America was um, that you had, you know, the two main parties were both kind of reasonably sensible on, you know, supporting the free enterprise market economy. Um, they were both kind of pretty moderate on those things. It's, that's not true anymore. You have a Democratic Party that's way off to the far left, completely casual about spending money with no restraint whatsoever. And so you hear these announcements. Never once do the Democrats think, you know what, why don't we take a look at what we're spending our money on now and try and cut some spending to save the money? It's never that. It's always more, more, more. Let's add to the budget more money. Now a bond issue, as you say, the interest rate payments, more, more, more. Let's tax more. We can spend more and tax more and just keep layering on these failed policies one after another. Never stop to think, is this policy working? Is that program working? Why don't we cut that one? Why don't we reduce that one? Why don't we save some money so we can reinvest it in something? No, it's never that. It's just always going back and taking more money out of people's pockets. Mm -hmm. And the governor wants to be first. He wants to be seen as leading. This this really is like a it's like a drug hit for him to be seen as leading. Just today, I saw he wants to be seen as leading on getting rid of diesel trucks in California. Well, how's that going to work out? Maybe there's a reason that other states aren't getting rid of diesel trucks. Maybe we need diesel trucks because they go places, long distances, with heavy loads, and electric electric trucks won't do that yet. So. Why are we doing this to ourselves? We're leading on climate. That What that means in practice is we're paying too much for electricity and we don't have enough of it. And we're leading on trucks and we're, le <laughs> we're leading on electric cars. This is not going to work. Yeah. This is not going to work. And, but, and now we're going to lead where on they've led is, is, is and you with can the see where worst homelessness us. crisis in the country. That's the actual leading that they've done, right. lead the nation right. in homelessness. I mean, the, you know, we, we had Richard Bailey, the mayor of Colorado, who made the point very sure. clearly, you know, you've had a massive reduction in homelessness across America over the past few years. Uh, and whatever, 25 percent increase or more in California at the same time it's, as it's reducing elsewhere. Mm -hmm. um, and they can't just blame it on the weather because that well, includes the, Florida the as well. It also says, has nice weather. You know, it's, it's just ridiculous. That's right. No, it's the Ninth Circuit decision, which said that you can you can enforce an anti-camping ordinance in your city if you have enough shelter beds for everyone, but the cities will not build shelters. They want to build these wild-eyed castles of homeless units, this the campuses of, of tiny homes, and they want to build housing and apartments and all of this very expensive permanent residential housing that they're going to give away for free when they could build shelters yeah. and then enforce an anti-camping well, ordinance actually block, and then build houses. They actually the, the, they could, the, the they could homelessness, go in that order. That's why people talk about the homeless industrial complex. The homelessness advocacy groups actually block the shelters from being built so that they can keep lobbying for the more expensive stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's right. just... Uh, right. It's very frustrating because you, because it's it's so cynical, this, actually. So he's you know he's got this plan. I think he it really hurts him. Um, well, clearly it hurts him politically, but it also hurts him. I think he doesn't like the fact that, that just now, and it's not even a partisan thing anymore. Ca you know, what, what will his governorship of California be known for? 
actually. I mean, he can go on and on about leading on this and leading on the, you know, climate and banning cars and, you know, gas, all that stuff. But actually, in the real world, what California has become known for under his governorship is this homelessness crisis and the crime. Um, and he's, he's try, I, think, I think this is all about just, again, as with almost everything with him these days, I think it's about positioning in terms of um, a potential presidential run either this time or next time. So he needs to look as if he's doing something about it. And so they go back to the, the same well, which is let's just, you know, announce more money and let's make a nod to mental health because it's not just, you know, so that they can't be accused of saying oh, it's just about housing. Um, no, 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 mental health. But of course, they don't talk about drugs. No, nowhere in any of this statement is the, is the drug addiction point. They call it mental health. I don't know if they mean that as a euphemism for drug addiction. Um, but they don't talk about drug addiction because they won't get to that central point, which is to get people off drugs goes against their current ideology. That's yeah, true. I think they call that behavioral health. There we go. The, the portion of it for substance abuse. But there again, because of this institutions of mental disease exclusion from Medicaid funding, which we can get a waiver for, any facility with more than 16 yes. beds can't be funded by the federal government. So there again, it's... It's a choice that the state of California is making not to build any large institutions. The governor doesn't want large institutions. And as a result, we're giving up funding for treatment for for all of these people who need treatment. They don't yeah. just need housing. I mean, they need treatment. Just, a, just another couple of points I'll, I'll, I'll just throw in here. Um, they uh, uh, This is actually unbelievable, but they are literally in the announcement of all this. Guess who they're blaming for this? For the for the homelessness crisis and that they're now dealing with, I'm not making this up. Guess who they guess who he he's throwing under the bus for causing this homelessness crisis. Uh, Ronald Reagan, you got Ronald it. Reagan. It's only it's only oh. what is it? Um, ninety. <laughs> let's do a quick math. It's nearly thirty years. Exactly. It's been a while since so, he was governor. Uh, sorry, seventy years. So I mean, it, what are you talking about? It, that was like he was the late sixties, <laughs> and it's, it's Reagan's fault. It's just mm -hmm. unbelievable. He was the late sixties. See, it's not Reagan's fault. So here again, this is the 1965 right. Medicaid law that prohibited funding of large institutions, of care, mental health care in large institutions. That was signed by Lyndon Johnson. When that happened, all the counties in the country started moving their indigent patients out of large mental hospitals, because there was no funding, mm -hmm. into general hospitals, which didn't work well at all. People went into general hospitals or they went to the streets. The idea was, when Johnson signed it, is that everyone would be able to get these fabulous new psychiatric drugs and no one would need to be institutionalized. But it didn't work for everybody. By the 1980s, the large institutions were closing because of financial reasons, because they were not, they, they didn't have the patients, because there was no federal funding if they got care in those facilities. That was the period of time when Reagan was closing the hospitals because the they were level. losing money and they were unsustainable. When he was president, yes. The federal funding caused the governor. state... No, when he was governor. Yes, that's He's right. He's blaming him say. when exactly. he was governor yeah. in the 1960s. Right, because at that point, the state hospitals were not viable because you couldn't get any federal reimbursement for care in the state hospitals. That wasn't Reagan's decision. That was everybody's decision in the 1960s it's probably all Jack Nicholson's <laughs> fault because he did such a brilliant performance in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest that everyone thinks mental health hospitals are snake pits. And, and really, this is not helpful. This viewpoint is not helpful. 
the idea that you can't have hospitals for people who need hospitals is destructive because then they're on but the streets. That, and how does that e- okay. help anybody? Again, even on its face, right? Even, uh, okay, let's give them that. Let's just give them that it's Reagan's fault from the 1960s, okay? what? Let, just say, fine, okay, it's his fault. You've been in power, right? You've had sole control of the legislature for more than 25 years. Since 1997, the Democrats have run both chambers of the state legislature. You've had sole control of the governor's mansion since, what is it, like, you know, over a decade since Arnold Schwarzenegger was there. I mean, you've had decades to solve this problem, mm-hmm. even if it was entirely Reagan's fault, mm-hmm. okay? And he let's just say he deliberately did mm-hmm. it because he's so evil. And Ronald Reagan, as governor of California, deliberately created in, in, in the late 1960s to, you know, the conditions for today's homelessness crisis. You've had decades to fix it. You've had sole control. There's been no one stopping you. Reagan's <laughs> ghost hasn't suddenly sort of come out and sort of blocked you from passing legislation to deal with this problem. I mean, what are they talking about? There's absolutely <laughs> Absolutely. This is true. I mean, how can they even say it with a straight face? That's a very good question. <laughs> no, you're exactly right. If they think that it's Reagan's fault for closing mental hospitals, they should open mental hospitals. I mean, hospitals. what's been stopping them from doing any of this stuff of that they wanted to do? Why not facilities and open them? Why not open them as world-class, state-of-the-art, show the world, lead the world in what mental health care should be? Why not fund the education of more people to work in the field? Why not focus on fixing what you say Reagan broke? Why not focus on fixing it? But no, they're lying. They don't it's want just, mental institutions. And and they are not helping people who are of on course, the street with because their ideology prevents them. That, that's the actual truth. One fa- final point. Let's move on to the water after this because you've got some amazing facts for us on, on the situation with water storage and, and, and what's been going on. But just final point on this. So this was announced the media, this is just another symptom of why everything's so hopeless in, in California, because they, there's no challenge or accountability or pushback. So I heard it was all over the media. He makes this announcement totally uncritically recycled, total credulousness. The governor announced this plan. He's going to spend billions. It's going to have campuses. It's going to be mental health. It's going to be great. There's nothing to say, you know, I mean, just even the mildest form of, of, of pushback. Critics say... Um, that it doesn't include, you know, provision for getting people off drugs. Or critics say that it's just, well, it's only 10,000 people dealing with a homeless population of 160, or whatever. You know, there's so many sort of simple, you could literally do it in one sentence. The media, if it was doing its job, could just have, but nothing like that. It's just complete recycling of their propaganda. Mm-hmm. That's true. And they could, there are opponents. They could call Michael Schellenberger, who's an author, and he could give them a comment. They could call a lot of people. Uh, even outside of politics, they could call people who are experts in this field and can comment on how some of these programs have played out so far. Uh, it doesn't have to be in a nasty way, like partisan, yes. but it could just be more context on whether. Uh, yeah, and, and, and or just, you could talk to someone about of course. debt and, and just on and that, how, and you know, the, I mean, it's not a, it's not a trivial point. It's not some right. sort of, you know, like little partisan dig at the media or whatever. No, it's actually a deeper point. I'll just sort of I, I said we'd move on and we will, but I just want to kind of explain to those. Um, who are interested in this, why, why it actually matters. And as, as someone who's worked in politics and government for, for many years, but in, you know, back in the day, I was in, in the, you know, the heart of the government in the UK. And you, if you face a media landscape where you're constantly picked at and held accountable and they crawl over everything you say 
to spot the lies and the spin and the propaganda as we were in the UK, both from the state-run broadcast of the BBC and every other media. You know, you, you, when you make these sorts of announcements, you go through it and you say, well, actually, can we really say this? Because if we say this, the BBC will immediately say that's bullshit and we can't get away with it. You know, it actually makes you better to have a critical media landscape. It actually it mm -hmm. stops you from putting out things, that, saying things that aren't true. It stops you actually from putting out policies that are clearly just propaganda and spin and not real policy announcements because they fall apart under scrutiny. If there is no effective scrutiny, then that's how you continue to get these, these completely superficial um, kind of press releases masquerading as policy initiatives. You're exactly right. That's what they are. They're press. It's government by press All right, conference. Let's, well, and, exactly another, and right. actually, the water is another example. Let's let's hear what you've been um, uh, turning up as you've researched this this issue of the water. I mean, there's a the broad point. I'll just set up, well, and then you can go. Is we've had all this rain. Very welcome. There, you know, a problem in some places that have face flooding but there's an enormous amount of rain and we've now seen all the videos which has been literally being let out into the ocean what is going on mm -hmm. well in let's see 2014 i think it was nine years ago the voters of california approved 2.7 billion dollars in bond money to build water storage projects and none of them have been built and so over the weekend, the Department of Water Resources released this beautiful video of water being released from the Oroville Dam, just gushing, gorgeous, clear, fresh mm. water to the ocean. At the rate of, at the rate of 35,000 cubic feet per second, and I did the math on that, every hour that's 943 million gallons it's enough for approximately 3,000 to 6,000 households for a year every Amazing. hour just from that one reservoir. And there are 23 reservoirs managed by the State Water Project and 1,400 reservoirs statewide. And they are releasing water at that rate to the ocean. Where are the storage facilities? So I looked into that, and the problem is that the bond measure required all of the projects that were going to be approved to have public benefits. And water storage doesn't count as a public benefit. They count water storage as a private but benefit the bond for money the ultimate was for end water user, storage, for the customer, or for the water. So how could that even be? It was for water was... storage. But the, the public money can only go to the project if it meets public benefits. And here they are, restoring habitat, water quality improvement, emergency response, recreation. These are, so if jet skis can go on the lake, then that's a public benefit. But water storage itself does not justify the spending. What this meant was that they've done nine years of paperwork trying to explain what the public benefits of proposed projects will be. And then they have to go get half the funding somewhere else for each of them because the public funding from this bond measure can only be 50%. It has to have matching funds from a water district. So it's been nine years of paperwork and permitting and environmental documentation and no water storage. So the water is, we, if we finally get the rain, as this is yes. the climate, it happens every seven, eight years, we get the wet year, we get the rain, okay, and it's, it's going so to the Okay, it's so infuriating. Ocean. Can I just ask, so first of all, did they get the money, the bond measure? You know, we just talked about it in relation to the homelessness. So, so just go through the mechanics of that. What happens with a bond, issuing a bond? Well, they, they sell the bonds, they commit the revenue, 
they they borrow money from the financial markets. I don't know if they've borrowed all of it yet, but they, it's committed. And uh, the money goes into the mm -hmm. agency for the project. And then once all of the various requirements are met, they'll release the funds to the to the project developers. But not a shovel of dirt has been turned yet. It's been nine years. And in the meantime, the bond, the interest, as you That's mentioned right. earlier, the interest payments it's, come it's, from the general is, fund, so the tax. While they're arguing about jet skis and habitat, while they're interviewing migratory birds and saying, does this look like the kind of place you might feel comfortable? While they're doing that, we're dumping the water into the ocean, and in three months they'll tell us we're in a drought again. I mean, it's just it's just beyond belief. Except it's not. I mean, it's so frustrating, isn't it? Because we look, we have all these conversations, and we use this. To, I mean, I've got to somehow get off this. You know, I use yes. this language. You know, it's unbelievable. Of course, it's not. It's completely believable because it's so badly run. Just the basics. That's what I come back to all the time. The basics of competent governance are just simply not there. How you can have this a, a water a measure that's passed to literally specifically deliver water storage, and then they they retrospectively after. Uh, it's past. Mm -hmm. Say, oh, water storage doesn't count. It, I mean, I, you. Uh, well, there all was the cliches. A, I remember this. There was a big fight about up. whether I there mean, should even just... be water storage in the bond measure, and they put it in as a concession to the Republicans. It was yeah. uh, Assembly Leader Connie Conway who insisted that there should be water in the water bond, right. and they it, it went in reluctantly. And Governor Newsom has not made any of this a priority. He would rather have the climate change narrative that we're having a drought crisis and everything's unpredictable and we don't know if it'll ever rain again and then it'll rain, but it's yeah. a catastrophe and everything's a catastrophe and then we're in a drought again and you have to raise the water rates. And that's where that's where you really get to the point of it. It's all about raising more money and keeping people quiet because mm -hmm. if they tell you you can't have any water and then they double your bill for it, you get fewer complaints if they let you have it and you think you're, mm. you're not going to be able to have it. So it's all psychological operations in a way instead of utility. Yeah. It's a utility. Water is a utility. Utility, exactly. It's, it's because it's, they're so right. political about everything and it's, their, it's not even political, it's ideological. Actually, that's what it is. And this is why, it's another, not this is why, this is another example of this, this kind of pathology they have right. now, everything which is, is a crisis. to make everything an emergency. Um, everything's a crisis, everything an emergency. You know, it used to be on climate, it was, what was it, global warming, then it was climate change, then it was climate emergency, now climate crisis. And that's because that enables you to take these, or, you know, justified, not, and, it, and, it, and it means that they can claim these extraordinary powers, bypass um, normal procedures, just as we saw with the COVID emergency, um, the health, the public health emergency that went on years after it should have ended, because it enables them to do things like hand out um, corrupt contracts That's to exactly cronies right. on, a, on with no bids. We've talked about that before, um, and and with the with the climate thing, it's all. I mean, I'm sure there's some you know dodgy stuff like that going on, but it's all about saying, well, we just have to because it's an emergency, it's a crisis, so obviously we have to step in and and you know tell well, have you, you noticed can't that this climate cook your food this particular way, you know that's the point it enables these endless and, and have you noticed that this climate crisis seems to be only in california the wildfires the flooding it's only in california that we have this extreme climate and everybody else seems to be fine what an interesting thing that is when you consider that we're the ones who've been doing the climate mitigation policy for all these years it's a scam it's a complete scam 
and it's it's raising your utility bills and it's driving businesses and residents out of the state of California. Yeah, and 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 it's you know it's just the ideology driven. It always is with them, um, and and no sign on either of these big issues we've talked about today on homelessness or water of what I think people are just desperate for, which is common sense, exactly, and you know, practical problem-solving policies that just don't just strip out all the ideologies. Okay, what obviously what we need in terms of water is a reliable water supply. We want to protect and preserve our beautiful environment. There are interesting ways of doing that. We've talked about that before on this show with this, you know, that you could combine the infrastructure, the traditional water infrastructure we talked about with some new approaches, for example, that more, more natural approaches, you know, recharging groundwater and aquifers, and etc. There's all sorts of interesting things you could be doing, but they don't want to do any of that. They just want us to be panicked into, um, you know, into this sort of drought mentality, this scarcity mentality, which Michael Schellenberger right. characterized as this, you know, the scarcity mindset um, on every, That's on true. every and one of these things. interestingly, the governor so has they can waived come in some and of the regulations us. as these rainstorms have come and then come again and come again. He waived several of the regulations that were preventing pumping from the Delta and recharging groundwater. The most recent waivers were from recharging groundwater. There were various regulations and permitting processes that were in the way of doing that. So the fact that you can fix some of these problems with a waiver tells you that the regulations themselves should be looked at. And we should should get to where we have man-made damage to ourselves instead of nature damage. Yeah, yeah, great point. Oh, well, thank you, Susan, for digging into all of that. Very enlightening, very frustrating. But, you know, we'll never get anywhere unless we keep talking about it and exposing it. Um, you, with your help. So thanks for joining us again today, Susan. See you next time. All right, now for another perspective on this new, some new latest plan to solve the homelessness crisis, um, let's bring in Leighton Woodhouse, the aforementioned Leighton Woodhouse, who's such an expert on all of this, as we've been discussing with Susan. Leighton, um, just, you know, what, 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 is, what was your reaction when you saw this announcement from Gavin Newsom? So it's another, you know, another few billion dollars, and now he's talking about mental health and campuses for homeless people. I mean, you know, you, you know the sort of outlines of it. What did you make of it? I mean, first of all, I'll start by saying that Newsom seems to have a new homeless plan every year. Um, and I lived in San Francisco decades ago when he was mayor and, uh, and you know, he was going to solve homelessness in San Francisco then. And obviously that has uh, uh, it's not, not only not happened, but it's not exactly the opposite direction. Uh, I wish I had something more exciting to say about Newsom's plan other than I think it is generally a positive step in the right direction. Um, Mm -hmm. I certainly don't think it's going to solve homelessness in California, but I do believe that Newsom is feeling the political pressure to do something meaningful. Obviously, he's got aspirations to run for president, and this is going to be, you know, his his, so far his failure on homelessness is going to be a blight on his record. And I also think that it's a good thing that he is holding local governments accountable, um, you know, he rejected the the uh, the the when he put out a, a call to local governments to come up with their own plans, and they came up with something like a two percent reduction in homelessness as their goal. And he rejected that last year. Um, I think that, that was a good thing because I'm seeing what happens locally with these 
uh, with you know, especially in San Francisco uh, with its homeless industrial complex, you throw money at this problem, and all it means is that it gets fed into this sort of industry um, that had that um, frankly has its bottom line ali aligned with increasing the homeless problem, not decreasing it. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that it's important that he's now demanding, um, I believe it's a 15% reduction in homelessness at the local level and that there's, he's holding them accountable to these metrics. I also think that it's important that he's focusing on mental health as a problem. I mean, most of the, the plan is around housing, 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 housing. And as we know, housing, despite the fact that the problem is called a homelessness problem, which by semantically would lead you to the conclusion that building housing is going to solve homelessness, it's not actually a homelessness problem. It's a drug addiction problem. And building housing does not solve that piece of the problem. So while mo most of the plan seems to be directed at housing, I'm glad that at least some of the plan is mm -hmm. now directed at expanding mental health resources for people with substance uh, use disorder problems mm -hmm. because that's really the crux of the problem. So I think it's baby steps. So, so let's just to dig into that because I think that's right. It was it's striking to me that in the presentation of it, a lot of the language and the messaging was around mental health, right? So that is, I agree with you, that is moving in the direction of the argument that you and Michael and Schellenberger and others have been making, but particularly the two of you, that this that have really established that with a lot of people, which is that this is primarily a drug addiction problem. Now, drug addiction is clearly a mental health, um, is, is a subset of mental health. Um, right. And so, yes, it's good that they're saying mental health, but it's, it was striking to me that they didn't talk about drugs. It was mental health and not drugs. And so what mm -hmm. I really wanted to ask you, because you're the person that really alerted me to this, and I've been repeating it um, ever since our first conversation, was the difference between the types of treatment that could be funded by this. Um, and the point that you made previously was that actually abstinence-based treatment, actually getting people off drugs, is prohibited at the state level by, for state spending. Um, in favor of what they call harm reduction. Do you have any insight as to what this new amount of money, so it's, ba I think it, I'm right, it's basically 4 billion. So it's 3 billion from a bond measure, 1 billion from redirecting other funds. Um, and they're talking about 10,000 or so mental health beds and so on. So they got the beds and they get, that means that they got treatment with it. But will it still be this harm reduction rather than abstinence? Uh, it's a very good question. I don't know the answer to it. I mean, uh, to be clear, what the law says is that is that you're right that in practice, what it means is that it's effectively prohibited. Um, what the law says is that basically you can't take state money. Um, you can't take California state money if you're not practicing. Um, if you're if you're essentially if you're discriminating against people who are still using drugs, which which is if you're running a, a recovery program, you have to make sobriety or at least. Uh, some sort of uh, reduced use as a as a as a stipulation as a condition for acceptance. That's not allowed under under state law. If you're accepting state money, a lot of those same regulations around HUD money as well, so federal dollars as well. Um, and um, and my understanding, and I, I should also uh, caveat this by saying that I've been focusing on a lot of the Twitter file stuff this week, so I have not been as right. on top of looking at the details of this policy as I otherwise would have. But I believe the governor is. Is floating this um, this voter initiative to move uh, mental health money over to substance use disorder treatment. So 
he is at least in this 2024 um, proposition that he's floating uh, will be focusing on mental health money specifically on addiction. It's a very good question. I don't know how he squares that circle and if this is all going to be under the harm reduction rubric, um, uh, which state law would indicate it would need to be, because if it is, then, you know, you're going to have a lot of what you have at San Francisco where you have, uh, a, 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 a SRO or, uh, or a, uh, treatment facility in which people who are trying to get clean are surrounded by drug users, um, in the same building, you know, people across the hall offering you meth while you're trying to stay clean walking through a gauntlet of drug dealers to get into the building. Like this is what people who are trying to kick the habit are facing in California because of these rules. Um, and if that's the case, then of course, you know, these, 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 these treatment facilities will probably fail. And what about the, 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 the kind of campus aspect, you know, like, um, I don't know. I just thought, well, they've been sitting around thinking up a term for this that, that is, you know, <laughs> acceptable. I mean, to, I don't know what what they even mean by a campus. They're talking about. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, I mean, to, in, in one way, it, it feels to me like it could just be a new name for the disastrous uh, thing that they had in San Francisco, the safe treatments. You know, the, what do they call it? The what was that thing called? The the something. They're calling center. them wellness hubs now. But yeah, oh my gosh, the tenderloin, wellness. the tenderloin center, the tender was the tenderloin linkage center. Linkage. That's right. Yeah. Because they weren't actually linking anybody to any services, so they changed it to the Tenderloin Center. And now, when they replace them in San Francisco, they want to come up with a bunch of more, more of these. And they're calling them wellness hubs. It's very Orwellian. And to answer your question, you know, I I I don't know what the plans are, but I I hope, if I allow myself to be optimistic, that they will be modeled after, for example, what they're doing in Alberta, Canada, where they have, where they're they're following a model that I think we need to follow in California and throughout the United States, where they are building these massive treatment centers, which you couldn't credibly call a campus. Mm -hmm. I think there's something like the size of a football field. They're beautiful. I've seen video of them and they're like places that you or I would be happy to move into. They're really clean, kind of Scandinavian design, really gorgeous. Um, and they, they are, and they're far from the city centers. Mm -hmm. They're, far from the places where people can just go and easily get drugs, you know, off in the countryside. Um, this is a conducive, th these are conducive centers and conducive habitats and environments for recovery. Um, yes. If we were to do something like that in California, perhaps we would be building facilities such as these, you know, um, uh, aesthetically pleasing, comfortable facilities that um, reflect the kind of dignity that we want to bestow upon people who are trying to change their lives for the better and building these in say at the Sierra foothills or um, the central Valley where real estate is cheaper and where you can't just easily walk out the door and go get, well, I, sh I should, I should say in the central Valley, it's very easy to get drugs. But if you're in a rural area away from say Stockton or Modesto um, or Fresno, um, you could uh, 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 perhaps be in an environment where it's a lot harder to, to get your hands on drugs. Um, so like off in the countryside, um, in places where there's fresh air, uh, where there's access to doing manual labor, which I find, which, which I think people understand is, 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 is a, a very therapeutic thing for people who are trying to get their lives together. Mm. You know, in, in environments such as that, I think you could, you can pave a path to recovery for people who, 
are not going to succeed in recovery in the kind of context that we're providing for them in cities like San Francisco and LA. Yeah, brilliant. I'm really you know, glad you went. I don't know if that's what he's, I don't know if that's what he's actually going to do. Yeah, it's really interesting because I don't know either. We should look into it and follow and, and, and see if we can dig into it and, and, and perhaps have another conversation. We're just reacting to the announcement as and the details that the, this, the small number, the bare bones of it, really. Um, but right. what I loved about what you did there was lay out something that is, I can, I can imagine that, by the way, even if they are planning something like that, they wouldn't have described it the way you have because they're frightened that that might look too kind of inverted commas generous and that they'll get a political pushback. But actually, that's completely missing the point because if you make the argument and, and, you, and you accept the evidence and, and, and you, you've, you've done more work on it along with Michael Schellenberg than anyone, I'd, I'd say, you know, the point is to solve the problem. And, and if you not to sort of just keep it going. And if you want to solve the problem, you have to get people off drugs. And and so yep. what the, the right question is, how do we do that? And actually putting people in the and, and, and it's not being judgmental about why someone is addicted or how they got to be addicted. You know, half the time, I don't know, I'm, I use that as a form of expression. I have any data, but, you know, the, you, like when I saw this for myself in Venice, you know, it's criminal gangs that get people addicted. You know, they push people, someone who's, you know, on living on the streets and then a, and, and then someone, you know, who literally works for a drug, a criminal gang, g offers them drugs for free as a way of mm -hmm. turning them into a customer. That's how it works. Mm -hmm. And so there's no point being judgmental about people saying, well, they don't deserve a nice place in the countryside with all the rest of it, because no, we want to solve the problem. I totally love your points about manual mm -hmm. labor, fresh air. Fantastic. I totally agree with that. It's worth really looking into that. Can I just go back just so that we're really clear? I forgot to ask this just before. Um, what I think I, I'm getting this right from our previous conversation, but the state law that you referenced, which was about the, you know, the, the effectively the prohibition on abstinence treatment versus harm reduction. Did you? I think you said it was 2016. Is that correct? Uh, the law that sounds about right, but I cannot remember off the top of my head exactly what that was. Yeah, I think it's what that, let's let, let's yeah, I think it's I think that's what you said last time. I'd like to sort of okay. um, find out more about that. Maybe we have another conversation about that because I think it's so interesting, and I bet it really um, affects a lot of what goes on here. I just thought that was a very compelling little detail and the kind yeah. of thing that. Go on. I wrote a piece in Real Clear Investigations about it. So um, uh, while I don't remember off the top of my head, you would you likely find it in there. Um, yeah. I would say about the thing about in terms of the, the money that we spend on this problem. First of all, I think that anybody whose life is who's living the life of a street addict who genuinely wants to kick drugs and put their life back together. I think that we should be there. There's there's no amount of money practically that I would say we should not spend on that person to save a life. I mean, that person deserves uh, the the full support of this of our society. We should be spending a lot of money on those folks. It's also just cost effective because this yeah. is ruining our cities and tearing apart the fabric of our state, which is literally priceless a priceless problem to solve. Um, and then also, I would just point out on a very practical level, when you look at San Francisco and the amount of money that's being spent on and the ways in which it's being spent on homelessness right now, th there's a um, 
you know, the, there was a, a scandalous story that came out a few months ago about a, a top-ranking employee at San Francisco's Department of Public Health who was double-dipping. She was being paid a moonlighting salary for a contractor for DPH um, uh, called Baker House, Baker Houses, uh, one of the facilities that DPH contracts out to. Um, she was being paid on top of her something like four hundred and fifty thousand dollars salary at DPA. She was also being paid an additional like, or maybe it was three hundred and fifty or something like that. She was mm-hmm. also being paid an additional about one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars salary for literally sleeping. Like her job was, she was working on on she was on call on weekends during sleeping hours, so Friday and Saturday night. While she's asleep, she would have her her phone next to her so that if it rang then she could give some advice i guess and she was being paid one hundred twenty-three thousand dollars by a city contractor so then when that story was exposed by the san francisco uh standard uh and uh i guess a memo went out to dph saying this is against our rules um, and you should disclose if you're if you're taking a moonlighting gig 300 additional employees came out to say oh we're taking some moonlighting <laughs> gigs as well so this is like rampant corruption i mean i could go on and on there have been so many stories like this there was a a, a, a facility in hunter's point where the um, where that was supposed to be providing housing for the homeless and in fact they were providing this housing to employees of the nonprofit, most of whom were blood relatives of the executive director it's like just rampant corruption within the homeless industrial complex and series. That's what we're spending our money on. And this is hundreds of millions of dollars being spent to this kind of uh, like honest graft. Um, So yeah, we should, we should weigh the expenses of building an effective, well-funded recovery uh, set of recovery centers that actually fix people's lives versus what we're spending it on today, which looks more like that. Yes, and actually, the fact that the, the 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 concept of away from the where they are now is really important. And and again, it reminds me of the other story that was exposed recently, which was that the the exact non profits that are being that are taking money to campaign for homeless, you know, for for, for on, on homelessness from the city are blocking the city's efforts to build shelter. Oh yeah, that that's an that's an old story in San Francisco. It's kind of a ongoing pattern. It's the co the Coalition on Homelessness, um, led by Jennifer Friedenbach, who is uh, in certainly in this space, maybe the most powerful person in San Francisco when it comes to to, to uh, homelessness policy. And nobody ever elected her. Um, the Coalition on Homelessness regularly, um, you know, uh, tries to block. Um, uh, uh, homeless encampment sweeps, including through the courts. And there was a, a judge in Albany, California, who who uh, prevented the city from being able to do these homelessness sweeps. And the basis for preventing the city from doing these homelessness sweeps is this uh, Boise decision by the Supreme yeah. Court that said that you can't do homeless sweeps if you don't have sufficient housing to push those people, to put those people who you're sweeping into, which is a reasonable standard. But the, 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 the irony is that the Coalition on Homelessness regularly prevents the city from building shelter beds because they say, oh, the solution is permanent housing. We should not be putting our money into shelter beds. So the very same organization that's preventing the city from building sufficient shelter beds then goes to court and says, you can't sweep homeless in cameras because we don't have enough shelter beds for those people. But do you deeply, think that deeply they cynical. exactly? And do you think that they would extend that to recovery centers? Let's use that to or campuses, whatever term you want to use. In in you know far from San Francisco, would they apply the same logic? That actually, well, I guess we'll have to wait and see what this proposal turns into. But you, I mean, that right. you could imagine the same logic, which is um, 
what you say that you're gonna you're gonna take the people the street addicts and and give them this great recovery facility you know 300 miles from here but we don't we we don't accept that because they need to have you know permanent housing here in san francisco i would fully expect that line yes absolutely um, and if these centers, and we, we, again, we have to return to our earlier conversation as to whether it's even legally possible to have abstinence-based recovery centers um, paid for by the, the government in California, seems likely not. But if they are those those centers, then I would expect a full um, uh, lecture from these groups about how abstinence-based <laughs> recovery doesn't work and how it's immoral, blah, blah, blah. Um, and if they are not, if there's something short of that, uh, then I would expect some sort of lip service to, oh, yeah, you know, we support those who want to go to these recovery centers on their own volition, but there should be no pressuring anybody to do so. This should be yeah. completely voluntary. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with using drugs. It's just a, it's a choice and blah, blah, blah. And the, the same talking yes. points that we've heard at times. And with the, what is what that brilliant phrase you introduced me to? We're the anti-euphoria um, Yeah, coalition. exactly. Yeah. So, exactly. so that was great. Thank you for, the, for that. Um, it's always great to talk to you about this. Um, you've been such a great um, investigator and of, of all of this stuff. But just tell us about the Twitter. You mentioned the, you. the Twitter files. I mean, what's going on there? What's the latest? Uh, well, we just did a, a fantastic interview with this guy, Mike Benz. Have you? Have you? Do you know Mike? Have you talked to him before? You should have. Him no, on the show but I know. I know brilliant. the name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell, tell me more. He runs a group called the Foundation for Online Freedom. He's um, formerly yes, with, yes, the, yes, with yes. the State Department. Um, and he is the the, the man uh, when it comes to understanding the censorship industrial complex. And Michael and I just uh, had a, had on our, we have a new podcast, so I'll just plug it real quick. Uh, and we, we talked to him for an hour and 20 minutes or so. Uh, just really eye-opening discussion. Uh, and uh, and then we've been, as usual, just digging further into what constitutes this uh, this very disturbing infrastructure, which I think is the biggest threat to American democracy today. It's amazing. I mean, I did a couple of pieces. I, I remember now exactly. He, um, just before Christmas, actually, on my Fox show, and one was about the um, the incredible. You know, well, well, you. I mean, I'm sure you've just been all, been through it all in much more detail than I was able to. But the, just that, you know, the the number of people from the security state that have ended up in senior positions in the tech companies, and then the other thing that was really, mm -hmm. you know, striking is the mission creep. You know, from from the from the, and and he chronicles that really well, and I just captured a bit of it. You know, going back to you know, the concerns about Russian meddling and how that morphed into actually the real threat is not Russians, but Americans. And then that turns into COVID. And it's just this endless mission creep where they just, they, well, they just see threats everywhere. It's wild because it goes back even further than that. You know, I mean, you could start the, the, the you could, if you wanted to, you could probably set the starting point at like World War II. But, um, uh -huh. but, uh, but, in 2011 specifically, you know, a lot of this funding that was coming from DARPA, this is what mm -hmm. Mike Benz explains on our podcast, was going towards monitoring the Arab Spring. Um, oh, yes. Know, so a lot of this stuff came, and then and then a lot of the, the, these same researchers when were like uh, tracking social media from ISIS. So there are a lot of these uh, sort of foreign influence operations, some of which were quite shady, some of which were totally legitimate. Uh, like tracking ISIS, yeah, I don't think anybody would have a problem with tracking uh, what ISIS is doing online to try to to to, to squelch their activities. Uh, maybe a little shadier when you're looking into like you know Eastern European 
um, uh, democracy movements and with a regime change agenda, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, maybe a little shadier. Uh, we could have a debate about it. But uh, but these foreign influence operations where they're tracking uh, people abroad and trying to influence, shape the public discourse in these foreign target nations, um, they just took that same um, technology and best practices and focused it domestically. So Benz explains, for example, that at the same time that they were looking at the Arab Spring in 2011, that was at the same time that Occupy was happening in the United States. And they were tracking um, uh, the the um, sort of public discourse around Occupy as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they were looking at, and this was funded by the DOD. And so they're, they're, they're tra- you know, the Pentagon was paying for tracking sort of domestic actors in the United States. And then eventually, of course, that became election integrity monitoring. And then that became COVID origin discourse, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you see how this stuff just creeps from one thing to another. Um, yeah. Until we've got essentially uh, the, the surveillance operations that were running abroad and that were paid by the Pentagon and the intelligence communities are just being run on American citizens. It's amazing. I mean, I, I found the most chilling thing in when I was looking into all that documentation was, and, you know, he, and was that there's some document from the whatever the oh, was it the virality project, the COVID thing. Yeah. So it was the election integrity mm-hmm. became the virality project. Um, right. And it was all the Stanford Internet Observatory and all these people, the Atlantic. Right. And um, and there was one document where they proudly boasted about the. I remember the number because it was just such a sort of funny number. The 66 COVID narratives that they managed to squash, you know, and, and it yeah. was exactly as you were talking about, like some of them, you think, OK, fair enough. You know, I mean, although, you know, I don't support the censorship, but you could you could see yeah, fair enough. That is, you know, not not um, not something that. Um, you could you could sort of legitimately say yeah that's that's a sort of problematic to use their word narrative something you know the sort of microchips in the vaccine or whatever but the other things that one of the ones one of the sixty six narratives they tried to censor for example I remember was an argument that people would make that the the the, the pharmaceutical companies were benefiting commercially from vaccine mandates which is like obviously <laughs> true and like they, no you may, you may you may think that's a motivation or not but whatever it's a, clearly a fact you know and they and they, they yeah. were squashing that one they were squashing mm-hmm. um you know arguments about the um effect of, about mandates because of the again the fact that they don't prevent transmission, that the vaccine doesn't prevent transmission, and therefore there's no real argument for a ma- mandate because it's a private, right. as Jay Bhattacharya and others, you know, I've been going on about this, we've all talked about it for years, you know, there's no there's no pr- public benefit because it protects you if you even accept that it protects you, if you accept that it protects you, it protects you, but not anyone else um, because it doesn't prevent right. transmission. That you That was one of their 66 narratives that they proudly... Yes. Uh, censored. I mean, it's just astonishing when you read this stuff. And look, it would be bad enough if this was coming from, say, the CDC and the NIH going out and saying, oh, you know, this is wrong and this is wrong, so we have to suppress the speech. First of all, it would be bad just on a basic free speech issue, even if you were talking about microchips or something crazy like that. Exactly. You have the right to say, you have the right to be wrong. But, 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 But also, if you were talking about, you know, preventing transmission, CDC and NIH are obviously claiming that it did prevent transmission back then, so that would be bad on its own. But it's even worse than that because these are not people from the CDC, the NIH. These are not people with any sort yes. of like scientific degrees or medical background. These are just like people from the intelligence community. Yeah. Some people who are just sort of like hall monitor types who, you know, graduated from Stanford or wherever. And they're just making these, you know, went to some liberal arts school and they're making these these empirical uh, uh, determinations about what the legitimate speech or not 
essentially against just well, what 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 is the consensus view, and what are the the, the right thinking people saying at this given moment? And if you dissent from that view, then you should have your opinions brought. Yes. Well, at least we have so-called journalists like you and Michael <laughs> exposing all this stuff now. I thought that was brilliant from the hearings. Um, so-called yeah. journalists. Um, brilliant. Thank you so much. It's so great what you do. Let's just remind everyone where they can follow your um, work, Michael's work, and this podcast you just referenced with, with Ben's. Yeah, all of the above at Public, which is the name of our new Substack that Michael and I uh, run, which is at public.substack.com. And then my Twitter is at, at L Woodhouse. Fantastic. Great to see you as always. Thanks, Leighton. Great. Thank you, Steve. Talk soon. So, hi, guys. I absolutely love the title of this series, Follow the Science. I mean, it's just that phrase is just sort of burned into all of our heads. Over the past, whatever it is, three years now, my goodness, <laughs> since this all got going. Um, and, of course, it means the exact opposite um, of what most people um, in the establishment media and, and the kind of group think around the medical establishment, what, you know, what, what they told us to do, follow the science. Of course, they weren't. And those of us who challenged the group think were. Um, so I absolutely love that that's the central focus of all of this. But um, maybe you could um, kick us off, Hawk, just like tell us the story of uh, why you wanted to make this and just give us a bit of an overview before we get into the real details. Sure, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm a bit of a dissident filmmaker. I've been making films about authoritarian regimes for, you know, going on more than a decade now. And when when the when the virus entered our story, when, when the when COVID-19 became a norm, I, very, I was living in California at the time, and I really mm -hmm. saw that the initial reaction just seemed to be one giant exercise in getting the population to comply. I, I, you know, there was a moment of maybe, okay, there's a virus that mm, uncertainties are there, but it seemed pretty clear that there was there going to be a major realignment to how government and society interact. And I decided to get out of California pretty promptly. I left January 2021 and okay. um, after writing it out with my family in California and on my way out, I got a call from a bunch of filmmakers who were my friends and saying, hey, our spidey sense, our artistic sense, our rational sense all, is all telling us that something doesn't compute, something doesn't add up. And we want to make a film about this. We feel that there are independent ways of thinking that are being pushed aside. And we'd like to make a film that that that, that champions that as opposed to the left-right paradigm that, that dominates the narrative. So I, they asked me to direct it. And I was like, sure, that sounds great. However, we also all work in the Hollywood industry. And uh, we needed to create a, a, a cover for our the people who work with us. So we formed a group called the Sound Mind Creative Group. So everyone on the film is actually working anonymously, except for myself. I've, I've gone public because <laughs> I've already... My, I've already crossed that bridge in terms of right. doing Bunt it and, yeah yeah so but naming it a lot uh, follow the science it just seemed like well there is the prime example of, of a type of propaganda term being used one way you know yeah. sort of the thought police it clearly is being used in another way to compliance dogma what does it really mean we thought we would just sail our our effort our ship right into the controversy and name it follow the science and the, the pilot episode is called follow the science lockdowns go viral and we really mm -hmm. focused in the pilot episode on sort of January 2020 to October 2020 and that whole process or the mm -hmm. hero's journey of the ordinary world. Where were we? What was happening when we before? And then that moment of the call to adventure when the virus showed up and everything started changing. So we really kind of track that 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 evolution and how we all got into the flat and the curve, the idea of lockdowns, how they all introduced. And it was this very kind of slow, systematic messaging that kind of got a lot of people to comply that perhaps wouldn't have done so if they had more information. So we're trying to create exactly. a project that brings that information in. 
Let, we'll, we'll go into the details in a, in a moment. I'm so interested in all of the, the, the origin story of that. Um, I've got my view and other people have a different kind of perspective and we'll see, we see where we come out. But Clifton, what's your, um, how did you get involved? What's your angle on all this? Oh, well, uh, I was asked, but, uh, the, the bigger story is that, you know, I'm somebody who I was an up and coming actor in New York city. And, mm -hmm. uh, I actually, for the first three months of 2020, um, I was very much in uh, what I call the Covidian camp or if, or cult, if I'm being less, uh, less charitable. And, um, you know, the city got hit really hard, um, but they also leaned really, really hard into the into the different mitigations like lockdowns and masks and social distancing. And so I upended my life, uprooted everything and went to Atlanta, Georgia, which is mm -hmm. where I am now. And uh, the original plan was to kind of hide out here for a while as if, uh, you know, until things blew over. But then the... Um, the industry passed down the vaccine mandates and uh you know for my own reasons i said this isn't really for me so now i've been effectively locked out of the industry on top mm -hmm. of my vocal opposition because over time i began to ask more questions i began to realize that what we were being told to do um in order to mitigate the spread of the virus uh seemed to be completely antithetical to living any kind of meaningful or joyful existence and um you know, I became an outspoken critic of what we were doing, and I happened to also be talking about more social justice issues. And over time, I met some of the right people um, and gained a bit of a following uh, organically so and unexpectedly so. And uh, the people from Sound Mind Creative um, saw me, they saw my story and um, thought that they could use my skill set. Uh, you know, I can I can speak words and um, I'm uncomfortable in front of a camera. So, uh, you know, and uh and what I enjoyed about the the script, the the initial script, is that the you know I'm sort of a narrator in it, but there's also a very much an uh, an exploratory um, sense to the uh, the the project as well. And I I'm sort of an everyman, so we we begin with asking, you know, did lockdown save lives? And we go through the scientific method um, as we explore that question. And uh, so in addition to all the storytelling elements that Hawk was talking about, there is also a very much a very highly accessible um, scientific discussion at the center of the um, of the piece as well. So I, I was really um, intrigued by it. And I've been a big voice, a big advocate about what's been going on and how wrong it's been. Mm -hmm. and so it was only a natural fit for me to uh, to jump on board. I'd love to just dive into what you've you, what you mentioned at the beginning there, which is that actually you really changed your you change your mind um, on all this mm. pretty quickly. Just take us through that. What what caused that um, uh, change for you? Well, it's really funny because, um, you know, it's a very New York way to start a sentence. But I was talking to my therapist about this uh, <laughs> virus back in January of 2020, you know, because, you know, I yeah. sort of unplugged from the quote unquote mainstream press or mainstream media a long time ago. So I was already watching uh, more, you know, content creators and people in the alternative space, as it were, who were saying, um, and, oh, and uh, and some of your colleagues on, on Fox, you know, mm -hmm. who were talking about in late January, something's going on in, in, uh, in China seems pretty bad and um and me being in new york i said there's no way it's not here already so mm. I, you know i never got caught um wrestling with uh with grandmothers um in the aisles for toilet paper because i was already stocked up um, mm -hmm. i bought masks it was already hard to find masks um you know i've i bought my gloves i was one of the only people in new york at the time who was masking and gloving in public and um i mean i was i was 
wiping down my my keys, my mail, my groceries. You know, I mean, I was I was all in. I was all in. Right. And um, but here's the thing: when you actually have a diverse friend group, um, who that, that you respect, they can sort of give you a different perspective. So you know, I'm furiously texting statistics to my friends and telling them to get prepared because this thing's going to wipe out the you know the the entire city. And um, but I had a friend who kind of left the door open and was like, "Well, I, I don't know. It might not be as bad as they're making it out to be." And in fact, one of the pieces that she sent me was by John Ioannidis back in oh, March yes. 2020, mm-hmm. right? And um, and I was annoyed at the time because I was like, "People are going to die! How dare you!" Um, but but I I left the door open. Um, because I respected her and her opinion. And um, over time, you know, I began to have more questions, especially with how Andrew Cuomo, for instance, our disgraced former governor mm-hmm. of New York, um, how he was handling it, um, you know, the nursing home scandal. Yeah. Uh, just over time, you know, and my distrust of the media anyway, you mentioned sensationalism. Uh, so over time, my skepticism grew and grew and grew. And um, then I moved to Atlanta and it was like night and day. And so while in New York, you couldn't go to a Broadway show or to the gym, in Atlanta, the strip clubs were open, the bars were open, the nightclubs were open. So you can get a lap dance at Magic City, but you couldn't get you couldn't go see a Broadway show. Amazing. And so for me, you know, barely any masks anywhere. Um, it was it was a whole different world. And I, and guess what? No mass deaths. And so that really, really began my shift um, or maybe I guess accelerated my shift mm-hmm. into like, no, this is not the right way to go about things. It's really interesting because I think that people did get very kind of dug into the dogma. Um, and you were on sort of team COVID or uh, team uh, rationality, as I, I would like, I would characterize it pretty early on. And so it's really interesting that you made that shift. But let's go. Oh, let's just talk about the um, the origins then. And just go to the lockdown question. So what's the what? what how do you portray that here um, in well, terms of how that all got going? Sure. Well, we, we, we start very simply. We, we, we want to look at, we were thinking about we're artists and we were thinking about what's science. And, and I mean, fr- freedom of expression is sort of the, the precursor to be able to ask questions. And that's mm. curiosity. So the episode itself starts with curiosity and asks the simple question of why. And, and when the idea of, you know, when, when the way the scientific method works is like you, you, you pose a question, you, you look at stuff, you, you, you pose the question. And this idea of lockdowns was presented so quickly and mm-hmm. with this strong sort of empathetic um, argument for it's about saving bed space, that there would be this sort yes. of moment of, you know, if we all give our two or three weeks, the two weeks to flatten the curve, you know, it's, it was almost like you know, post 9-11, everyone wanted to give blood and that kind of thing. What can we do together, pull together as as the, as an American people uh, to do what's right to, for this? And and yet there was this element of fear that, you know, this invisible thing called COVID uh, this new SARS-V2 virus. And then there was this idea of, I think people were still holding on to, they wanted to believe that the, the medical world and the scientific world wasn't corrupt. I think we've seen that, you know, we, we kind of have a sense that Hollywood's corrupt. We have a sense that the political world's corrupt. I mean, as we've mm-hmm. seen sort of the march of corruption becoming more and more apparent, but that there was still this idea that science on high is somewhere there's this institution that's the arbiter of truth. And and they and they, they you see it on the television. It's repeated over and over again. It's like, look, we, we need to we need to protect the beds. We need to flatten the curve. We need to lock, and we have to do this thing called lockdown. And it was this presentation that didn't seem to really offer anything beyond that two weeks. It was just sort of it was, it was like get yeah. people to agree to it here, and then the mission drift will begin. 
And that mission drift was was what I was anticipating. I was turning to my friends like, well, all right, I know everyone's a little nervous about this, and I know everyone's kind of stalking and prepping, but I assure you this is not going to last two weeks. This is an attempt to change habits. This is a t- attempt, a, an attempt to bring in compliance into the norm and, and, and really also kind of let people, you know, this top down, we know it's right, you don't know what's going on, do what you are told. And it was watching that form, and you were talking about like changing your minds. I, I felt as if people just wanted to believe that these people knew it. They want to know that the experts have the answers. Mm. And, and even the idea that, that, that the experts were supposed to lead this, I mean, they're supposed to present the X, Y. Here's what we can do, X or Y. If you do X, you might have this range of things. If you do Y, you have this range of things. And then that information is supposed to go to our politicians who then make a tough decision after they weigh it all, they put it out there, there's a debate. But there was this moment where we're like, no, no, follow the science. We're going to, you know, it's no longer about the decision makers. The scientists say this is what we must do. And so they convinced everyone to do it. And we've, we realized that once people had gone into that, they've made a decision to follow that, the idea of getting them to realize that perhaps they made a mistake or perhaps they've been misled or that perhaps they may have to change their mind. So we really thought about how do we make it a, a show that leads people through how was that initial decision made? How did we get there? Uh, we have three perspectives. Well, Clifton's our main host. We actually have, uh, he's sort of the human interest uh, sort of hero, the hero's journey. Then we have Nick Hudson of Panda. He's, a, he's the chairman of Panda, pandata.org. It's a group of Southern Hemisphere dissident scientists uh, who, who, who is the science communicator. And then a YouTuber named Sydney Watson. And she's a, she's a journalist and she, kind of, she covers the sort of narrative aspect. So, for, so starting right there, we have three different perspectives looking at the same things happening. So it gives us the ability with three different perspectives you can actually navigate. You have, you have that, you can triangulate. And so we wanted to give people that ability like, oh, look, if you could look at here, look at it from here, look at it from here, there were legitimate questions. There were legitimate ways of, of thinking about it that were different. And then we have an additional storyline. We call it the epiphany storyline, a woman named Jen Reisman, who mm-hmm. is a, um, a child psychologist. And she herself was like, like a COVIDian and like mask police and like, calling people out and that kind of stuff. But she was dealing with children who were dealing with suicide and suicide ideation and all sorts of abuse and uh, neglect and, and whatnot. And she saw that the lockdowns were hurting the kids. And she, she herself has a daughter. She, this is not right. But she was very much here. So she was holding, you know, she was very much on the side of wearing the mask. So she was holding both of those in her head for a year, not knowing what to think. And so we show her evolution internally as well. What, what, what was it like, like Clifton, to slowly, with study, realize that perhaps what you're being told isn't correct or isn't isn't perhaps in your best interest mm-hmm. and so we, so we want to show people what it is to change your mind different perspectives and then anchoring all this we have two really excellent scientists we have dr jay Bhattacharya uh, out of stanford oh, yeah. and we have dr uh david katz who's uh came mm-hmm. out of yale and is uh you know syndicated in the new york times from time to time and um he and he's a chronic disease specialist so the two of them give us sort of the back and forth of like here's what science was thinking at the time here's what science would normally do during this but then this sort of alarm bell came along saying you know what we're not doing enough we have to do lockdown so all these little discrete moments because we all lived through it we never got a chance to go back and talk about it so with those we talk about each sort of major function when we first heard about the virus first heard about lockdowns first heard about ventilators and then, and then they were a drop that never returned to. And so we, so why, why did it happen that way? So we try to have that sort of, you know, hard science data and human interest all together. You know, the emotional story to show what it is to change your mind, to ask questions, mm-hmm. pursue 
prove that through the scientific method as well as natural human curiosity and what it is to change your mind. And we hope that we lead it to a conversation. And then Nick and Sydney and um, Clifton at the end have a conversation about what they've learned. Because at the end, we want to establish what dialogue is, what conversation is, and try and get back to that communication that seems to have gone by the wayside in the American people. We want to get back yeah. to that conversation. I mean, the thing that's interesting about, about all of that, I think, and, and why it's so important to have these conversations now and, and so what you're doing is so important is that we is that you, you know none of it was inevitable um and actually what they try what they tried to present was this illusion of consensus so these are oh, the scientists and you mentioned oh, we've got to do what the scientists say there wasn't a consensus and in fact the you know ianidas for example he was writing i believe about well it was in uh, january he's writing about the italian sorry in early february i think about what happened in northern italy and he was the first to point out that this wasn't a and this wasn't a um, universal impact in terms of the virus. And even the scientists here, I mean, particularly affected older people, uh, people with you know uh, respiratory conditions and other um, pre-existing illnesses and so on. It wasn't this universal impact, but it was very very transmissible, highly transmissible, but actually very varied in its impact and actually very low risk for most people. We knew that right at the beginning. So when people say, well. It's all very well to be, you know, wise after the event. And, you know, we had to take precautions because we didn't know it was a new virus. That's not true. We did know. You did have scientists right at the start, at the very beginning, pointing out, as Ian Edis did, as Jay did. I was the first to put Jay on television. It, was, it wasn't like, you know, months into this. It was in March 2020 that, that we did a whole show on um, the, 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 the terrible mistake that we're making in this kind of universal application and this, this assumption that this virus affects everyone equally when it clearly doesn't. And so, you know, we put forward that argument that led, later turned into the Great Barrington Declaration about focused protection and so on. Protect the vulnerable was the phrase that we use. It's so infuriating that, that this history is being rewritten. Um, and that's why what you're doing is so important. Yeah, precisely. That's what we were aware of when, when I and my colleagues got together. We, were, we, we knew that we wanted to, to have a retrospective that encapsulated the alternative ways of thinking. And, and that, that because it, 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 it was as if there was sort of a main conversation, you know, people would kind of talk about it on the streets. And then there was the presentation in the press. And they mm. never quite, it just sort of, one just sort of steamrolled the other. And it, you know, there was never like, well, well how long is this, how long is this going to last? And, and I, I think the ventilators thing is a very good example where yep. ventilators suddenly became a little, you know, fast forward a little bit, suddenly ventilators were the most important thing on the planet. <laughs> right. Everyone, Cuomo versus DeSantis versus Elon Musk, like we have spare ventilators, we'll send you yours. No, 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 we have spare ones. I think even Venezuela was offering to ship them up north at one point. And then one day, poof, everyone stopped talking about it. And no one's really gone back to visit why. Now, I, there's reasons why, and I think those are going to come forward, and we address that yeah, in the series as we move forward. But it's like that's the kind of thing where you point out to people, like, well, what, wait, how come we didn't discuss? Why, why did it become not so important? It was as if that was the great savior, and then it went away. And 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 if to ask that question, you could feel you, you if you pose the question, if you got curious, you could feel not just the pressure from from the narrative coming down, but from your peers saying, no, you're not allowed to ask questions. You're not allowed to yeah. do that. You have to do what you're told, and, and you could feel the peer pressure. And it was it was really quite shocking to see happen. And it was had nothing to do with I think like normal where you're like oh it's political parties. Almost every community it could be a theater, it could be a church, a political party, a group of friends. 
it seemed to go right down the middle. Those who were who wanted to sort of believe what they're being told, and then those who thought, wait, that doesn't make any sense, but they felt the silencing, they felt the shaming and shunning yeah. to keep their mouth closed. And that's what I that's why I, I was like, I had to make something to try and capture like, look, there was a much more complex debate going on that you weren't allowed to hear and I wanted to make But they sure that's right. They were silencing the debate. Yeah. Go ahead. And Clifton, I'm just interested what you you know, you you, you saw it from one perspective. Um, and I think one of the interesting things at the beginning was that a lot of it was a lot of the immediate lockdown, just just sticking to the lockdown question. If I'm recalling this correctly, before even the government kind of stepped in, and I think I'm right in saying that the first official government imposed lockdown was actually right where I live, Santa Clara County in California in Silicon Valley, Sarah Cody, the public health officer. And I've had a go at her because her lockdown plan was actually written by her after 9-11 um, as, as a plan in response to a bioterrorism attack that affected everybody equally. And then she just sort of dusted it off and applied it uh, to this, which is very different. That's the first government one. And then I think later that week, the Bay Area counties followed suit. And then you had Newsom doing it for the whole of California. And then it went across the country. And then eventually you had the Trump White House doing the 15 day. But that was the, the government thing. But before even that, I think, maybe I'm remembering it wrong. I'd love to hear what you, your perspective, particularly from New York, is you had it organically happening. Um, theaters closing, I think NBA canceling games and so on. It was just all there was a kind of panic to kind of stop stop things from happening. That was the first sign of this, I believe, before even the government imposed lockdowns. Well, it was very strange because initially, um, back when they were calling it the boomer remover, by the way, uh, <laughs> trivializing right. the, the, the victims of the, uh, of the virus, you know, people were saying in New York that it's just the flu bra, basically. Um, mm -hmm. I remember there was one uh, point where I was uh, masked out in public. I think I was going into the uh, subway Columbus Circle in Midtown. And um, this guy saw me with a mask on. Uh, and he just goes, well, the ones that's wearing it, they must be the ones that got it. So there was there was this attitude toward it at the beginning. And then our, our doofus former mayor, Bill de Blasio, was saying mm. you know, as late as March, you know, I'll go out to the movies. Um, uh, I saw right. this great exactly. new film at yada, 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 take the subway and and, uh, you know, go down to Chinatown, all this stuff. So, you know, there was a very uh, strong impulse to downplay everything. And then, of course, everything turned around 180 degrees right after that. And I think part of that yeah. is uh, I think part of it was political. Honestly, um, it, you know, if you're in New York, it's a very, very deep blue uh, uh, city. And I hate to make it partisan, but I think part of the it was part of the, the, the Trump sort of minus thing. Yes. And it's weird because he was he was accused of downplaying the virus. But then again, so were they at the beginning. So, exactly. you know, what, what, what's what's going on there? But then over over time, it it um, the drums of propaganda, I think, began to roll on and mm -hmm. on and on. And especially in New York, I mean, for those who aren't in on the island of Manhattan, you have to understand that there was no escaping any of the propaganda. You'd walk out of your apartment building and there'd be uh, arrows on the sidewalk telling you where to walk. There'd be little circles telling you where to stand outside of whatever business establishment. You'd see people uh, queuing up outside these small little bodegas and, and little shops, you know, in, in the winter, by the way, the, the dead of winter. Um, there were digital ads, you know, placards on the sides of buses and taxi cabs. You'd be on the subway and, you know, with reminders to wear your mask and different languages where to get vaccinated. So there was never 
any moment where you were unaware that there was some mm. invisible threat that was that was around you. So, you know, so one of the things I think that kind of snapped me out of it was watching people go from um, from being completely blase to clapping out of their windows at 7 p.m. every, uh, you know, every oh, yes. night in weird ritualistic fashion. Um, just a very, very bizarre um, yeah. experience and something and one thing that really that really frightened me was watching the psychology of the city change. Um, mm -hmm. You know, me New Yorkers, we kind of ignore each other anyway. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, but to see people and maybe this is the bleeding heart in me, but I kind of took it personally. I made this joke where, you know, I, I'd be walking on the sidewalk and these like sort of well to do. I call them Lululemon liberals, um, you know, these yes. white women in their yoga pants. Um, you know, <laughs> they would just make a big. There's a lot line. of them around here where I live, I can tell you. Yeah, you know they're 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 just the best," he said uh, sarcastically. <laughs> but um, but you know I, I I made this joke where you know back in 1919, um, I would have to step off the sidewalk to let this white woman pass. But then in the era of COVID 19, now it's these white women that are stepping out of the way to avoid me. <laughs> you know, it was just this weird uh, something just changed in in the city, and I, that's why I call it the city formerly known as New York. Um, and I don't think I don't know how long it'll take to recover. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's so interesting how, how all this transpired. And you're completely right. You know, it was this, I mean, and, and again, if you look at, I mean, it's, I, you, you kind of think, how did this happen? Like with masks is another example where you have Fauci quite correctly at the beginning stating that people shouldn't be going around wearing masks because they don't, they don't protect you against this because it's a, I mean, he didn't go into the science, but the science as we, as the, as the, uh, uh, injunction was, and your your series is titled "Follow the Science." Um, was very clear that these are tiny little aerosols that the, the virus is spread through, not just the bit, sort of droplets that you get with, you know, other other forms of transmissible um, illness, and that the masks are basically pointless. Um, as is the social distancing. That's the other thing that I think people forget. The masks debate. I think has been, you know, to a certain extent, you know, like well aired and people are on either side of that. But and there was and there's new research the whole time. There's this review. Was it the Cochrane study just the other day that did, you know, looked at all the peer reviewed studies, not peer reviewed, um, random randomized controlled trial studies around the world showing that they didn't make any difference, etc. So we've, we had a lot of discussion around the mask, but the social distancing, I think, hasn't had enough attention because. The social distancing, and you talked about the circles, these ridiculous, you still see them in some places because they mm. haven't taken them away. There's the ridiculous kind of, well, if you're six feet away, you're going to be fine. It's, it's so mad. And again, we knew this at the beginning because I remember reading um, a, a study, you know, I think again, March, something like that, right at the start of this, where they tried to measure how far the aerosols, the, vi the virus particles traveled. And because it's airborne, it's much further than six feet. The six feet thing is, is all based on something that's carried through droplets. And it's the weight of the drop. If you sneeze or cough or whatever, then the droplets come out and the, and the weight of them makes them fall to the ground. And it's, you know, six feet is the safe distance. But this is totally different. The, the, these particles travel much further, 30 feet, 40 feet. They measured that right at the beginning. So the whole kind of purpose of social distancing was 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 invalid and, and yet it was the social distancing that caused a lot of the harm in terms of shutting down businesses and so on because a lot of places you couldn't do six feet so it didn't make any sense you couldn't implement it and therefore you had to be shut down it's totally pointless 
Well, absolutely. Yeah, and it, 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 made, it, made, it made no sense. And one of the things I, I just remember, like, and there were the sort of self-appointed things. In the early days when the only thing you do is go for a hike or you know, go, for, go outdoors, you'd, you'd come along and I would not, I refused to wear a mask for as much as I could. And, but people would come down and they, if they, even if they were wearing a mask, they would see me and they would stop on the side of this trail and they would turn their backs. Oh, I've had that. I know. Insane. This is, they would sort of invent exactly. this sort of, oh, here's exactly. a new protocol. Outdoors. I mean, I mean, even the BBC in England, I saw something like, there's not a single case anywhere observed of someone <laughs> catching it outdoors. I mean, just ridiculous. Yeah, you, you really felt like the, the wheels of history were turning and that there was a massive habit change being, yeah. being produced in the population through these things because they, they didn't make they i mean it was almost like take the armband and put it on your mouth to that degree and and it gave people a signal of what side you're on or became that over time exactly, you know, that, exactly. again initially people were thought oh I, I i need to do what's right i don't want to kill grandma i mean that became one of the buzzwords yeah all these things you're putting money over look oh work if you want to earn money that means you're you're putting you're putting lives you're putting money above lives and it's like well poverty kills i mean people have to put food on on the table in front of their children but that there was this in this initial intensity of, of of and this constant sort of one thing after another after another after another with no regard what happened before it it was just this constant mission drift that we went from flattening the curve to you know zero cases or or, or limiting cases as much as possible yes and, and never a chance to question it and it's just sort of like there was this strange like oh yeah. okay stand six feet apart okay that's what we have to do and it just didn't you know people were just desperate for information and and the government this is the this top-down singular policy for everyone uh yeah was crazy while we know that focus protection and target you know targeting our efforts for the vulnerable would have been much better we would have saved so many more yeah. people if we allowed the the ingenuity of the american people to take hold and gravitate towards what worked and what didn't but clifton i think that what you just what, what Hawk just touched on there is like really a big part of it the tribalism that came with this, that, you know, the, the, the wearing, the, the obedience became a symbol for those who want, who, 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 um, complied as a symbol of their virtue. Um, and for those of us who thought it was ridiculous, um, a, a symbol of unthinking obedience to, to group think that was completely wrong. And it just became really tribal. Well, you know, this is where I sort of began to get really angry. For one, seeing New Yorkers who, you know, anyone who's been there knows that New Yorkers think that they're smarter than everyone else and just better than everyone else and more virtuous than everyone else. Um, but there's also this attitude in the city, especially in Manhattan, of, you know, not not necessarily f you, but there's an abrasiveness, there's an mm -hmm. aggressiveness mm -hmm. to the city. Everyone is, you know, everyone has somewhere to go and somewhere to be. People move to the city because they're ambitious. They, you know, they have things that that, that they want to accomplish, even if it's just getting through the day or getting a seat on the subway during rush hour. You know, um, and to see these supposedly tough, smart New Yorkers completely fall in line with all of these city destroying uh, policies was unbelievable to me. But even on top of that. In my background, in show business, yeah. you know, I, I'm somebody who, you know, to see the Broadway community, for instance, completely embrace these um, these lockdowns for me was was incredible because, you know, you're talking about Broadway. People come from all over the world, both to see and to be on Broadway. It's yeah. deeply, deeply uh, woven into the identity, into the fabric of the city. When they're begging for money, they always talk about how much revenue, how much economy, uh, how much of an economic engine the arts are and Broadway in, in, in particular um, are to the city of New York. And so to see 
these people, and again, part of it is political, part of it is a tribalism, part of it is far leftism, um, is the, to see these people allow themselves to be rendered non-essential while liquor stores got to stay open, McDonald's yes. got to stay open. Um, That's that right. was oh. that was incredible to me to watch, and I, I just I couldn't believe yeah. it. But it was all about you know we the people were f filled with hysteria and fear. They they were convinced that they're saving lives, and on top of that, there's this element of well, the only people who aren't complying are a bunch of uh, knuckle dragging redneck uh, MAGA hat wearers, and this yes. would come back to bite them, uh, you know, in the in the behind in the end, just in terms of like uh, the vaccine mandates, for instance. Um, this is an yes. industry right now which has leaned full on into anti-racism and into critical race, um, you know, wokeism, whatever you want to call it, and they mm -hmm. say they want a more diverse audience, but at the same time they push these vaccine mandates because they think that they're getting back at the MAGA Trumpers, and yet Black Americans vote over ninety percent for the Democrat Party, yet they're the least vaxxed demographic. And they just they don't care about that. Um, Latinos are the second least vaxxed demographic, by the way. And so they are shooting themselves in the foot. And then they wonder why, in addition to this woke programming, why they can't keep their shows open. They're so flabbergasted. I mean, Phantom of the Opera, one of the longest running shows in Broadway, closed just this past year. Um, 16 Broadway shows. I mean, the, the fall and winter season is often is often rough for uh, for Broadway, but 16 shows closed and they, they can't figure out why. Well, you've alienated half the country and a bunch of your uh, foreign audience as well with these ridiculous COVID protocols. So exactly. Um, but 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 they but again, tell it to them. Even to this day, I see production, uh, you know, pr promotional photos and actors are still wearing masks. They're still doing it. They're still vaccine mandates in the industry. So I still can't I can't even audition. It's it's insane. And it's all it's tribalism. It's groupthink like you were talking they, well, about. Well, they still and, got uh, the mask. So you can't do that now. Nope. Can't. It's just crazy. I mean, the, the <laughs> mandate. Me I mean, the, it's it's so <laughs> offensive. To, you know, I mean, just let, just to take that one, right? As J Jay was, you know, Bachero is very, you know, strong. And by the way, I had him on this show, um, talking about this as well as on Fox and YouTube censored the episode. For, and and all he was doing was telling the truth, which is that the va vaccine gives you a private is a private benefit, not a public one. It protects you, but it doesn't prevent transmission. And therefore, it's entirely a personal choice. It has zero impact on tra transmission. And so what there's no case for any kind of mandate at all. Um, no. Oh, but it's just you're you're getting me all you're reminding me all the things I'm enraged about, you know, like, right, for example, right. going back to <laughs> Sorry about when that. you talk about McDonald's. <laughs> no, but it's true. But we have to be because it's it was outrageous. I mean, the word rage is, is rightly in the middle of outrageous. I mean, and you're reminding me things like the fact that Target was open and but the small local shops had to close because they didn't have the capacity and the resources to put the stupid, you know, social distancing things on the ground or where they don't big enough to do social distancing. So, yeah, it's small businesses were shut down effectively by the government and these big giant companies that are donors to the politicians were kept open. I mean, it's just disgusting, well, actually. Well, and to that point, I mean, everyone we've ever met and everywhere you've ever been also had to go through the lockdown. So everyone's bursting with their own version of it. I mean, that's what yeah. the show for all the science is going after by going right. re recounting that just like as Clifton was doing. You're like, right. And this moment and that moment. Yeah. And everything. Yeah. This? 
because we, we do test audiences, you know, as a filmmaker, as a creative, you want people like, oh, I like the colors. That was a good joke. Or, you know, it was a nice moment. People, there's none of that. People just go right in. I remember the, my version of that. And they, and they just come bursting out. It was all, all that expression that they wanted to make that they felt they couldn't is right under the surface. And I think, it, I think it's culture wide. I think it's tribal wide. I think it's all over the place. And we hope to bring that conversation. Like, remember that? I remember that. And I remember thinking this at the time. People have that memory. You know, they associate emotions and memory together, you know, like their knowledge and their emotions come together. And we hope that this show, you know, we want to pass along the wisdom. We don't want to see this get repeated in history. And we have to learn lessons from it. So in a retrospective that captures all these discrete moments, so it walks mm. you through, they're like, all oh, right, this all occurred. We want to bring it back in people. So it'll drive that conversation, you know, uh, and, and we have characters who, who we ease into it. It's not like we're coming in battling. We're like, here's, here, you know, here's Clifton. He's a charismatic, interesting fellow. He's curious. He's going to go in and dig into this. And we go on that journey with him and we, 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 we re-experience it. And with that re-experience comes the dialogue that didn't happen at the time, because these are these discrete moments need to be discussed, and the science that 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 was pushed aside needs to be brought back to the forefront. Jay is an Jay Bhattacharya, Doctor Jay Bhattacharya is an absolute hero of mine, and I think he should be running the CDC in the future. I mean, he's he's the type of leader that we need in terms of like explaining the science, explaining the the, the, the medicines, yeah. so we can make better choices in the future. And just, to, just, I mean, he's a personal friend, you know, he, he lives near me, you know, I'm right there near, near Stanford. And, um, and the way he was treated, for those who don't know, I mean, by Stanford University, right, which is supposed to be this sort of bastion of, of you know, excellence and thought and whatever and research and world renowned, whatever, that he was treated despicably by the mm. university for telling the truth and for presenting actual science, which contradicted the groupthink. And it was totally corrupt because the head of his department was married to Dr. Sarah Cody, the public health director of Santa Clara County, who was responsible, as I mentioned earlier, for leading all the lockdowns. So it's totally incestuous because he was challenging that group wow. thing. The head of his department then complained to Stanford. He was he was what was he, he put on leave and, for six months or whatever from Stanford. There's an investigation into him. As if he'd done, he was a criminal. I mean, of course, all of it in the end retracted. They had to take it all back because he was right and they were wrong. But the fact that you had someone, something like Stanford University treating a scientist who actually was presenting the truth to the world like this is just such an unbelievable moment in this whole story. And you, and you have that repeated across society. And yeah, and, and, and just just to add and jump on the Jay train, it's been unbelievable because, uh, you know, Jay, for anyone who's met him, anyone who's spoken to him, he's extremely kind. He's very warm. Yeah. He's very smart. And, you know, he's told me that he would have been fine. I mean, he spent his life basically researching and publishing papers and teaching. And that was his life. And, you know, he said he doesn't even like being in front of the camera necessarily. He's not that comfortable with it. He's a regular, hardworking, just really good guy. And to see the way that he's been so maligned mm -hmm. and, um, you know, to see people like Francis Collins and Anthony Fauci refer to him as some sort of fringe epidemiologist. Really? Stanford is fringe? What, what is your definition of fringe exactly? Disgusting. And, yeah. uh, you know, so and so people talk about now the, the loss of trust in our public health and in our various institutions. Well, part of the reason is that you have people like Jay Bhattacharya who are smeared relentlessly by disingenuous charlatans. Exactly. Very well said. Um, let's let's sort of close it out. Just talking about the. The, 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 the function of this, because I think as we're talking about it, it's just so clearly needed because we haven't had 
anything official of this kind. That's the, that's the thing that's really outrageous, is you think after something this momentous that has completely upended our economy, our society, the deaths, you know, and frankly, whichever side you're on, whether you're on the side of saying, you know, whatever, a million people died from the virus versus those who point to all the deaths and, you know, from, from, the, from the consequences of the lockdowns and the ongoing impact of that, for example, in cancer diagnoses that were missed or treatments that were, were, were cancelled, et cetera, et cetera. So whichever side of that you're on, there's no, there's no disagreement. This was an absolutely momentous thing for our society. And yet there's no interest, in, 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 it seems to me, from, in, on the official side of doing what you've done with this series, which is to go back and say, OK, what happened? What, why did we do all this? Um, what was the science? It's just amazing that, that I mean, you're, 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 I mean, it's great that you're doing it, but it's amazing that it's the only kind of thing around of this nature. Yeah, I mean, that was very much my intent was that I, I had a feeling that wasn't going to happen. I thought, well, if we can yeah. get this out there first, the market, if you will, it'll help. It'll help drive that. We hope that it brings the the debate. We hope that it gets challenged. We 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 actually do a very good job of explaining science. The, the idea is creating a science um, vernacular, like a, a shared mm -hmm. um, ability to talk about it, so that that way, you know, it, that we actually have like a great sort of cartoon sequence through it. We have we have we have an animated Kobe Kobe two, and <laughs> and a Steamboat Willie character, and and that character kind of carries us through for like the younger generation, so they're like they're very engaged with it. But then we have this hard hitting science with Jay and Dr. David Katz talking about it, and in the course of it, we use the terminology. People get familiar with the terminology. We, we define it, use it, use it in a conversation to hear interesting and, and, and fascinating people using it correctly so that afterwards all the generations all the different demographics people who watch it they have that shared vernacular they have that science literacy to have a discussion about what we went through as a culture because i think that's part of it is they they, they don't know how to talk about it there's all this technical techno babble i mean mm -hmm. i just noticed that whenever whenever our health policy leaders got cornered they would just kind of throw out some science babble that really wasn't anything but they knew that no one could come back at them because they could they could retreat to their expertise even though it really wasn't informing the the, the population with what they were trying to say and i'm i try to i want this show to be an antidote for that we keep mm -hmm. things in plain language with relatable people charming people that people want to learn from and so when clifton is curious about this people are like, yeah yeah well, clifton wants to know i want to know that too you know and you, you, we, we carry it through because we have to get to the point where everyone can have a conversation about this and bring their own experience. We need everyone's experience vocalized, expressed, everything that everyone was scared to say. I think if we can get our people, get our culture and our, our, our fellow Americans speaking about this, that conversation I think will really help us not yeah. follow this pit, go into this pit again in the future. Because obviously- well, I certainly hope so. Yeah, I mean, in, in a moment, we'll just wrap it up, Hawk. I'll ask you to tell everyone how to you know, watch sure. and so on, but just any final thoughts, Clifton, before we, before we say goodbye? Um, no, you know, I think uh, it's a really important uh, story that needs to be told. And I think that uh, it's fantastic that, that people are taking the time out to put out a, a work that really examines questions that were never really asked and uh, brings up a conversation that never mm. that was, was never had. So, you know, people ask me if I regret the decisions that I made. Um, some days it sucks, but at the same time, um, I feel pretty confident that um, I spoke up for all the right things and I'm, I aligned myself with the right people. Um, and I yeah. hope that yeah. uh, people watch and, and they, they come away with a, you know, with a more open mind than they did before, perhaps. So I think it's an important, uh, an important piece.
Yeah, great. And just before, just before we say goodbye, I just want to point out those who are listening, not watching, uh, your T-shirt um, is fantastic. Defund the thought police. Uh, yeah. <laughs> tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, this was a gift from uh, the people at Unwoke Apparel. Um, you know, I have I have a few shirts um, that that they've they, they've gifted to me, but uh, this one probably is my favorite. It's just it says so much. It's very cool. We love it. All right. Um, so finally, Hawk, just tell everyone, you know, wh when is this out? What, how, do, how do we get involved? How can people follow follow this and, and watch and support what you're doing? Sure. Well, uh, one thing I should mention is the entire show has been donor supported. So we, we're, we're completely independent artists working with uh, supporters and we are premiering it on on April 19th in Orlando, Florida. Um, and there are tickets available and, uh, but we're also, and then it'll be released after that. We're having a sneak peek on March 15th, mm -hmm. uh, sort of a test audience, uh, for anyone who wants to donate. Um, we're going to do that. We'll have a, we'll have a, um, um, you know, we'll have some feedback opportunities and then we're, you know, so April 19th and then after that it's released April 19th. So follow the science series.com. It's follow the science series.com leads you to all this stuff. We have an amazing, we have over a thousand donors. We, we we're, we're coming out with all sorts of material and we really hope to change the conversation and move that needle of history just a little bit. That's, uh, yeah. that's what we're hoping to do here. Brilliant. Absolutely fantastic. So appreciative of, of what you've all done here. Um, and it's been an Thank honor you. to, um, have you on to talk about it today. Thank you very Thank you, much. Steve. There you are. He's great. Um, really enjoyed that conversation. Susan is always fantastic, of course. Um, make sure you follow us for uh, all these great conversations about what's going on in our state and across the country. Um, follow us on Apple and Spotify and YouTube, wherever you get your podcasts. Tell everyone about The Steve Hilton Show. And we will see you back here soon for the next episode.